Praise the Lord. Amen. So good to be in the house of the Lord with each of you this evening. Praise God. Let's all stand. I don't believe it's just because I'm up here, but whenever I get into the presence of God with others, corporately, I get, I just get a little bit excited because, you know, and we've talked about this, I get, I love my personal time of prayer, my closet time of prayer, me and Jesus get very intimate, and I appreciate that, Uh, but there's just something different and something equally special coming together with the body of Christ uh, in the presence of God. And uh, I think it's a different experience. I think it's equally necessary. And I think it can be very powerful. It can be as powerful as we want. It can be as powerful as we need. Uh, But that is up to us. God has the same power. He has the same authority. Uh, whether we're here or not, whether we believe in Him or not, whether we expect anything from Him or not. He has the same amount of power, the same amount of ability, the same amount of desire to minister in this place this evening. The difference, of course, is you and me. What we expect, what we believe Him for. And so, if we will just maybe risk a little bit this evening and, and reach out a little bit more, believe Him for a little bit more tonight, Try him and see. See what will happen. See if he won't do exceeding abundantly above all that we can ask or think. Amen. Let's reach out to him this evening. Lord Jesus, you're an awesome God. You're a glorious Savior. You're a mighty King. You have all power. You have all authority. I acknowledge and I declare this evening that you sit upon the throne all by yourself. There is no God beside you. There is no Savior beside you. You rule. You reign in this place this evening. Oh, hallelujah, Lord Jesus. We acknowledge that you are the King of kings and that you are the Lord of lords, that there is no one higher and that there is no one greater than you. Hallelujah, Jesus. This evening, we're expecting awesome things of an awesome God, not because any person is here, but because you are here. Hallelujah, Jesus, because you are here, the Lord our God, the Lord Jesus Christ who has all power, who has all authority, and whose eyes and whose heart is toward your people. Hallelujah, Jesus. We're expecting awesome things of you this evening because you're an awesome God. Hallelujah, Jesus. Hallelujah, Jesus. I pray, Lord, that you would minister in this place wondrously, miraculously, according to our desperate need according to your perfect will here. Hallelujah, Jesus. You are so awesome. You are so wondrous. You are so glorious in this and in every place. You are magnified. You are lifted up. We give you glory and we give you honor. Now and always. Hallelujah, Jesus. Hallelujah, Jesus. I am so thankful for you. I'm so thankful for your so great salvation. I'm so thankful for the relationship that you established with me. Thank you, Jesus, for your mercy and for your grace, your long-suffering patience to usward. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. All these things we ask in Jesus' name. Hallelujah, Jesus.
Hallelujah, Jesus. Praise God, praise God. Amen, amen. He's an awesome God. Praise God. Thank you for standing. You can be seated. Amen. We are this evening going to continue our study. I was truly expecting to finish this uh, on the doctrine of man tonight. Uh, There's just a lot here, though. So it's going to go at least, I believe, one more after this. But in any case, uh, the doctrine of man, part three. Genesis 127 says, uh, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. So again, we understand that man was created, man and women were created by God uniquely and specially for his purpose, for his glory. Uh, Tonight we're going to be talking about three topics primarily. Uh, Man's state before the fall, man's state after the fall, and, uh, no, I guess we're going to talk about two. I also wanted to talk about man's state after salvation, but we're going to have to wait on that. Good, good topic to close out on, though. <clears throat> so, we understand uh, that when mankind was created, he was created with three parts, body, soul, spirit. Okay. Now, before the fall, we know that the spirit was always supposed to be in charge. The spirit, which has communion with God, uh, which is able to hear from and understand God, that aspect of our lives, that aspect of our being, was to be in charge of the soul and of the spirit. The soul, meaning the intellect, the will, those kinds of things, that was to be subservient to the spirit, and in charge of the flesh, the body. The body was just a vessel. The body was here to carry us around and to interact with God's creation. That was supposed to be the lowest rung of the ladder, submitted to everything else. After the fall, that got flipped on its head. And the flesh became dominant. The soul became subservient to the flesh, and the spirit died altogether. So originally, we understand body, soul, and spirit. Spirit was in charge, then the soul, and then the flesh, the body. So that was man's state before the fall. That's how we were created. What was our knowledge like? And by our, I mean Adam and Eve. Genesis 2, 19 and 20 says this. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field, every fowl of the air, and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And Adam gave names to all cattle, and to the fowl of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found in helpmeet for him. Okay, the point I want to make from this passage of Scripture is that Adam was able, right after creation to name every single living creature in the entire world. Now, how many of you know the names of every living creature in the entire world? How many of you know half of them? Not even half? I certainly don't either. 
Now, we understand, uh, biblically, we're not talking species, okay? We're talking kinds. Kinds of animals. And that shortens the list down somewhat, but there are still thousands upon thousands of kinds of animals. And he gave them names, every one. And he remembered the names of every one. He was able to do that. Now, keep in mind also that in ancient times, names were more than simply tags. They had a whole lot more meaning to that. It always referred to one's character, one's destiny. And so, understanding that, Adam would have had to have had an intimate knowledge or some insight into the nature and purpose of each kind of animal. So he didn't know just the names after he named them. He understood why they were here. They understood what part of creation that they fit in, the order of creation. Which is pretty amazing to me. Genesis 1.28 says, And God blessed them. God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. Okay, this is where we get the so-called dominion mandate. And here we see that Adam was given the awesome task of taking charge of God's creation. He was to have dominion over it. Okay, now, please keep in mind, we'll probably iterate and reiterate this a couple times, This is before the fall, okay? So when I say that uh, we were given dominion, that means something else probably today than it did then. To dominate certainly has a different connotation today than it would have before the fall. So Adam was given the task of taking charge of creation. This, who here has been in charge of someone or some department or anything at work, military, yeah. So you understand that to be in charge of something or someone means a little bit more than just being able to do the job better than someone else. It's kind of like the difference between being a Uh, an employee versus a business owner. A business owner, you're going to have to do the job as a technician as well, but you also have the whole other side of it, the business end of it. you got to worry about insurance, and you got to worry about contracts and legal issues and keeping the books that employees don't have to worry about. So when you're in charge... When you're, when you're the, the guy or the gal running things, it takes quite a bit more skill. It takes a little bit more knowledge probably than just showing up, doing your job, and heading home. Now imagine if you were given charge of the whole planet Earth. Think of the knowledge that you would have to have, the information that, that it would take to be able to effectively do that. I mean, I could... I mean, I could just, yeah, okay, I'll be in charge. I'll start, I'll start calling some shots here. But what, what kind of shots am I going to call? Not informed ones. Not very skillful ones. 
I could start making rulings, but I have no idea what the connotations of those rulings are going to be. I could start changing stuff, and because I don't like that, I'm going to put someone else in charge over here, and this form of government kind of stinks. I'm going to rearrange that. You know, I can do all kinds of stuff. But I have no idea what that's going to do long term. I don't know what, what, if I pull on this string, I don't know what's going to happen. I could unravel the whole tapestry. I don't know. That's something the guy in charge or the girl in charge needs to know. Adam needed to know that. Adam needed to have some pretty incredible insight into the inner workings of every aspect of creation, every level, macro and micro. When I stopped to consider that, when I stopped to think about it, the amount of knowledge he must have had is amazing. I just wrote a few things down that came to my mind. Atmospheric phenomenon. Interactions between all of the kinds of animals. How they interacted. What their needs were. The ecosystem that they were, they were placed in. Mineral deposits and other natural resource placement and usage. Geological phenomenon. He would have had to have some kind of knowledge in, into all of this. Fascinating. So before the fall, our knowledge base was, was pretty high. It was pretty amazing. And because the fall hadn't taken place yet, our minds were capable of processing that, holding that, using it effectively for the glory of God, in obedience and in submission to Him. That's what we were to do. Okay, our moral state. Genesis 1.31 says, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Ephesians 4.24 says, And that ye put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Ephesians 4.24 infers, and Genesis 1.31 kind of directly states, Everything was created perfectly, including us. We were morally pure. Adam was created in such a manner that he was a partaker of God's holiness and righteousness. He's often described as that dispensation as being in a state of innocence. But maybe that's not really the best way to state it. He was created in a state of holiness. He was holy as God was holy, as is holy. Was holy. Was then, still is. He was created to be in a state of holiness and righteousness, reflecting the character and image of God. Genesis 3, 8 and 9 says, They heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. They had perfect communion with God, continual communion with God. What a thing that must have been, to walk with Him in the cool of the day, talk with Him, commune with Him, have fellowship with Him. Sin had not yet separated us from this holy and righteous God. We were close to God in proximity, 
and in relationship. Amen. Our psychological state. Now this is, perhaps, where I dive off into a bit of speculation. So I'm going to throw that caveat out there. Uh, I'm probably not going to have any direct scripture for any of these. Uh, feel free to take them with a grain of salt. But it seems to be true. Okay, you'll know what I mean when I proceed. Adam seems to have been created with several drives or impulses. Okay, uh, the first I'll talk about is self-preservation. The reason I say this is Genesis 3.3 says, But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. That must have had some impact for God to state something like, If you don't obey, you're going to die. He must have had, I mean, that must have did something to him to make him want to not disobey. Okay, so that's why I say he had some sense of, uh, maybe a, a different term would be better, but uh, fear or respect of death. He wanted, he didn't, he didn't want to die. Is that fair? I, I think that's true. Okay, he had a, uh, some type of physical hunger or at least a desire to eat. Uh, Genesis 1.29 says, And God said, Behold, I have given you every herb-bearing seed, which is upon the face of all the earth and every tree, which is in the fruit of a tree-yielding seed, to you it shall be for meat. Okay, so he did eat. Uh, procreation. Genesis 1.28 says, And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. Okay, so they were commanded to procreate, to multiply and plentish the earth. <clears throat> As a side note, this word replenish uh, does not mean repopulate. Okay, the earth had never been populated up to this point. It means to populate. You look at the original Hebrew. Okay. The reason I say that is because there's this theory that there was a pre-Adamic civilization and uh, all of these things. Um, and this is one of the verses they used to, to support that. I do not subscribe to that. I do not believe it's biblical. Anyway, moving on. Uh, Genesis 2.24 says, Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. Okay, so again. Uh, they got married, they had kids, and that was considered good and right in the sight of the Lord. That was part of God's plan. Desire for ownership. Genesis 2.15 says, The Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. This was his garden. He was given ownership of it. He was, he was told what to do with this garden. Okay? Personal property is, is one of the staples, we believe, of a good democracy. Uh, you know, you have ownership versus renting. Uh, if you've ever rented a house or an apartment, you're probably familiar with this. Renters don't always take the best care of their apartments or their houses. Why is that? Well, because it's not theirs. It's yours. When you own something... Generally, you're going to take better care of it. You're going to improve it. You're going to 
Uh, you're going to bring it to a place where it's useful, it's productive. You can do something with it. Okay, the desire to dominate or to have dominion. Genesis 1.28, we've already uh, talked about. Be fruitful, multiply, replenish the earth, subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, the fowl of the air, over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. Okay, now, again, understood in its original context, this is a good thing. And it's part of God's plan for mankind, to have dominion over his creation. Okay, that's part of his plan. Good, bad, or indifferent, however you feel about that. That was one of the commands that he gave us. One of the purposes that we have for existing is to have dominion over his creation. Now, presently, we have the tendency to abuse that to our hurt due to our fallen natures. Okay, this desire or this, this uh, impulse we have to have dominion or to dominate, we use that in ways that it was never meant to be used. People want to dominate other people. People want to dominate uh, at the workplace. They want to, they want to dominate you know, in, in competition. That can be good, but not always. So, but in its, its original context, we were to have dominion over his creation. Okay, and we were to do that in the fear of God and for his purpose and for his glory, not ours. So, consequently, this innately good desire must always be controlled by the Spirit of God in us. And I, that can be said of pretty much every desire that we have. It needs to be controlled and checked by the Spirit of God. Amen. Our social state. Genesis 2.18 says, And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him and help me for him. <laughs> My children the other day were telling me all kinds of these Christian pickup lines. <laughs> My, I'd heard this one a long time ago. I'm just going to say this one and move on. But you walk up to a girl and say, excuse me, but I think you have my rib. <laughs> anyway, it was a whole evening filled with that kind of stuff. It was, it was fun time. I don't know if it works. I've never tried it. <laughs> I'm not going to. I'm not going to. Not ever again. <laughs> So, anyway, yeah, bring this train back on the tracks. Man has created a social creature. Adam had continual fellowship with God and with Eve in the Garden of Eden. These are both perfectly good and in the will and plan of God. When Adam sinned, he became alienated from a holy God. And it drove a wedge of suspicion between Adam and Eve as well. In Genesis 3.12 we read, The man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I did eat. That's what sin does. Okay, more on that later. Our occupational state. Genesis 2.15 says, The Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. Okay, so we see that even in a state of perfection, even in a state of bliss, even in the Garden of Eden, idleness wasn't tolerated. 
There was no idleness in perfection in paradise. Turns out Adam was not only a zoologist, he was also a horticulturist. Horticulturist. Yeah. The garden was given to them by God, but its beauty and harnessing the garden's productivity would only come through the work of Adam. Like that story. Farmer moves into a place and gets it all looking good and productive, and guy comes along and says, wow, God really blessed you. You should have seen it when he still had it. A bunch of scrub brush and stumps and rocks. <laughs> God made the land. God made the trees. God made the soil. All of that. But it's up to us to get it up and running. It's up to us to take the raw materials he gives us and do something with them. Not just in the physical. But with our own selves, our, our gifts and talents. Our spiritual callings. Amen. Creative occupation is God's intent, original intent for us, and absolutely essential if we are to experience fulfillment. So we've got to be doing something. God created us that way. Some of you are that way by default. Looking at one person in particular right now who can't rest, who hurts herself because she's out in the out in the yard working. <laughs> Not gonna mention any names. Sister McGinnis. I won't say anything. Some of us are like this naturally. Others maybe need a little bit of prodding from time to time. However, Creative occupation is God's original intent. Now, work became toil, but only after the fall. Talk more about that later. Our physical state. Genesis 2, 16 and 17 says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. Okay. So we can infer from this that as long as he stayed away from the tree, he would live forever. He would not die. Is that a fair understanding of that? I think it is. He would only die if he fell into disobedience. So Adam was created with the potential for immortality. The potential. Death was always a possibility, but only if he disobeyed the commandment of God. While in obedience to God, he was physically perfect. Imagine, if you will, if you can, having a genetically perfect body. What that must feel like, what, that, what you could be able to do with that body. An immortal, genetically, physically perfect body. Imagine that. And I won't get into the environment. Most creation scientists, the way that they uh, believe the environment, how the environment was structured pre-flood. But generally, if you understand what a hyperbaric chamber is, it was basically a worldwide hyperbaric chamber. Massive uh, 
quick healing. A super oxygenated blood. You would never get tired. Lactic acid would never build up in your system. Uh, I mean, it was, it would have been amazing. It would have been absolutely amazing. No disease. We don't read about injuries, but if it were possible to be injured, they would be healed very rapidly. No lapses of memory, no fatigue, no blemishes or unsightly markings of any kind. Perfect physical beauty. Absolutely amazing. <laughs> no fat, yeah. No flabby muscle. It would have been beautiful. Probably had a full head of hair. God bless them. <laughs> anyway. Genesis 3.24 says, So he drove out the man, and he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword, which turned every way, to keep the way of, this, of the tree of life. So after the fall, death was not just a possibility. It was an absolute certainty. It's interesting that he didn't die right away. Not physically. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. This lasted until the last Adam, Jesus Christ, came and removed the sting of death. Death will be the last enemy defeated. At some point in time, will suffer its existence no more. So to sum up, Adam was created in God's image, holy and righteous. He was placed in an ideal environment with a fulfilling occupation. He was provided divine companionship and marital bliss. As long as he obeyed God, he was immortal. And yet, despite all of these blessings and benefits, he decided that he could do it better. Have you ever thought, the grass is certainly greener over there. And then you get over there, and you realize... No, it was actually greener back over here. I sure wish I was back over there. You ever do that? I've done it once or twice. I can only imagine how Adam must have felt. He lost everything. But not just for him. For the entire human race. Now, I'm not going to stand up here and suggest that our decisions, the choices we make with our lives are so important that it's going to affect the history of the entire world. However, our decisions and our choices, they are certainly going to affect someone's entire world. Probably a whole lot of someone's entire world's. I mentioned a little bit ago about the, the awesome authority and responsibility that each of us carry with free moral agency. The idea that God has given us the ability to say no to God. The idea that He has entrusted us, for better or for worse, with the authority to do literally whatever we want to do with our lives. But with that authority comes an awesome amount of responsibility. 
Those choices matter. Those decisions matter. There are people watching you. There are people watching me. Always. And they're going to take notice of what you do with your life. What you decide to do. Where you decide to go. That authority that God has given all of mankind is... It's impossibly terrifying when you stop to think about it. The responsibility that we have to make good choices with what God has given us. Adam decided he could do it better. He knew more. That's a little bit simplistic. But at the end of the day, he chose wrong. He lost everything. Everything. Not like you and I can lose everything. Compared to him, we don't have a whole lot to lose. We're going to die either way. Should the Lord tarry, someone's going to be planting me. I mean, that's just the way it is. That's the way our life works. Adam didn't have to face that. He had a choice. If I obey God... If I live a perfect life, I'm still going to die. Adam wouldn't have. Adam had a perfect environment, the perfect job, the perfect wife. Eve had the perfect husband. I'm not going to say anything about that. You guys want me to, and you're going to get me in trouble. All right. <laughs> the fall of man. The fall of man, the, 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 the fact that mankind was created perfect and fell into sin is the center of the gospel message. That God loved us so much that He was willing to suffer on a cross in our place to purchase us back and to rescue us from our fallen state. That's the center. That's what the gospel is. I found this four-square declaration of faith online. And I thought this uh, sums up our fallen nature pretty succinctly. It states this. We believe that man was created in the image of God before whom he walked in holiness and purity but that by voluntary disobedience and transgression he fell from the Eden of purity and innocence to the depths of sin and iniquity, and that in consequence of this all mankind are sinners sold unto Satan, sinners not by constraint but by choice, shapen in iniquity and utterly void by nature of that holiness required by the law of God, positively inclined to evil, guilty and without excuse, justly deserving the condemnation of a just and holy God. That's pretty strong language to state exactly where we find ourselves after the fall. Again, we're not basically good creatures that just need a nudge in the right direction. That's not where we find ourselves after the fall. We find ourselves utterly and hopelessly depraved. In myself, without God, I know that there is no 
There is no amount of sin. There is no amount of, of monstrosity that I am not capable of. Given the right situation, you put me in the right condition, and I'm capable of literally anything. I've talked about this a while ago. Experiments have been done on this. It's so easy in the right situation, the right set of circumstances for us to become monsters. For people, normal people. I'm not talking about psychopaths and Adolf Hitlers and and Heinrich Himmlers and all of that. I'm talking about normal people. They have a, a wife or a husband. They have children. And you put them in the right situation, and they can do any level of, of monstrous acts to a, a fellow human being. That's built into us. That's our fallen nature. That's why we so desperately, desperately need God. That's why we are in so desperate need of salvation. And that helps us to understand that, that what an absolute miracle salvation is. That God brings us from that place. He doesn't bring us from way up here. He brings us from all the way down. And He brings us all the way up. That's that's the God that we serve. That's salvation. Although Adam was placed in a perfect environment and was given everything he would ever need, he rebelled. The question just has to be asked then. If God knew Adam would disobey him, then why would He set all this up for him in the first place? You ever thought that? Anyone ever asked you that? Well, if God is all-knowing and he's, he's all-loving, why did God put him in a place where he'd sin in the first place? At first blush, it's a good question. Of course, like a lot of biblical questions, it, it's just a simple lack of understanding. So, we're going to call this man's probation. What was the purpose of this? What was the purpose of placing Adam and Eve in this situation? Man was created in God's image. We were created with intelligence, emotion, will, free moral agents. God's desire is that we will choose to obey Him, but to do that we need an alternative choice, don't we? Otherwise there is no choice. If we have to serve Him, if we're forced to obey Him, I prayed that God would do exactly that for me. Take my free will away. I don't want it. I'm voluntarily giving it up to you. I'm choosing to give my free will up to you so that I don't do these stupid things anymore. But He won't. He doesn't. He can't. That's not part of His plan for me or for you. Maybe he could, but he won't. Genesis 2, 16 and 17 says, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. Okay, so the garden in this sense then becomes kind of a place of probation, a place of testing. Doesn't that sound familiar? Why would a perfect human being need to be tested? That's a good question, yeah? We'll get to that in a moment. This test was based on a clear commandment. 
the law of God containing two parts, a positive and a negative. We had a tongues and interpretation this Sunday talking about exactly that, the blessing and the cursing. We read about that in Deuteronomy. God does this a lot to his people. He presents, like a gentleman, and full, full transparency, he provides both sides. The blessing that's available to you if you choose correctly. And the cursing that's available to you if you don't choose correctly. But it's your choice. He lets you know what the results are going to be both ways. But you've got to choose. He's not going to choose for you. That's your choice to make. So Adam is in this place of testing. It was based on the positive and the negative. Okay. So, why if they had holy natures, would they even be capable of sinning? Obviously, yes, they are. Now, there's a difference between having a holy nature and a holy character. Okay? Their nature was, they were created with that. They were created holy and righteous like he was. That's how they were created originally. But character is defined by what? Proper choices. Proper choices. Character develops over a lifetime and is the result of testing in which a choice is made, whether good or bad. Good choices will develop good character. Bad choices will develop bad character. God desires the worship and service of beings with holy character. Let's translate this into things maybe that we can relate to. New Testament salvation. When we're born again, our spirits are regenerated. They're made alive again. God's character is placed within us again. At that point, the Bible teaches us that He bestows upon us His righteousness. He declares us to be holy, not of ourselves, but with His holiness, His righteousness. What's our character like? Have you ever known anyone that's just been baptized in Jesus' name and just filled with the Holy Ghost and they go back to living in sin? They just got the Holy Ghost and they go steal something from a department store? Why, if we have the holiness and righteousness of God, does God continue to test us? Continue to put us in situations that are hard? Why does He do that? Because He's building character. We're not Christ-like yet. God has given us His holiness and His righteousness right here at the altar. If I were to die... After receiving the Holy Ghost, I have no doubt that I'd be in heaven. But I have a lifetime of development to become Christ-like. To start looking like He looks. Thinking like He thinks. Reflecting His character. His image to this world. That takes a lifetime. A process. So, in effect, Adam was placed... I can't say for sure... I suspect this is the case, okay? 
So God desires the worship and service of beings with holy characters. He wants us today to be Christ-like. He wanted Adam and Eve to make proper choices and demonstrate to him that I am choosing, I'm continually choosing you. I could have chose that, but I'm choosing you. Now, I'll grant you, Adam had just about the easiest choice in the world to make, I think. The thing he had going against him, he didn't really understand what the consequences were, I think. He understood intellectually. See, you and me, we've experienced a lot of these consequences. We've known people who have experienced a lot of these consequences. Adam knew no one who lived in rebellion against God. Adam knew of no one who had suffered the effects of this judgment. I don't know if that played into his choices or not. But in any case. So the character of this situation. We find that it was, it was personal, not moral. Okay, and what I mean by that is, eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was not inherently immoral or evil. Okay? It's kind of like if we look at Abraham's test. God told him, go up to the mountain, sacrifice your son, your only son Isaac. That act of sacrificing his son did not reflect the moral image or character of God. Unless God had specifically told you to do that, there's no way you would have done that. Right? Or you would have. I don't know. Yes? No? No. I wouldn't have. I wouldn't sacrifice my son. Unless I was sure God told me to do it. But this is what I mean. It wasn't a moral or immoral act. It was an obey or disobey act. Right? So, eating of the tree was not inherently evil. He could eat of every other tree. And that was just fine. What made it evil was that it was now an act of disobedience to do so. So Adam's fall then was the result of disobedience, not the result of an immoral act. If we look at the Mosaic Law, uh, the moral law versus the ceremonial law. The moral law reflects God's character and is therefore inherently moral in nature. That's the moral law. It's a reflection of God's character. The ceremonial law is necessary and we need to obey it at its most fundamental nature because God told us to. That's the way God had ordered things under the Mosaic Law. The ceremonial law does not reflect God's character, not directly. 
And so the morality of these commandments are not self-evident, but become a matter of submission and obedience to God. Okay, so again, the fall of Adam was not due to an immoral act, but it was due entirely to an act of pure, willful disobedience. So it then follows that whether it reflects the moral character of God or if it's just something God told us to do, the results are the same. Either way, obedience is absolutely necessary. Obedience to God. This was a reasonable thing for God to put them in. Okay, understand that God does not do things without keeping our best interest in mind. It's true now. It was true all the way back then. If God puts us in a situation, if God tells us to do something or to stop doing something, it's for your best. He has your best interest at heart. He doesn't need to have his best interest at heart. He's omnipotent. He's eternal. He's all-knowing. There's, there's, no, there's no side of this where God needs to protect him, okay? He doesn't need to be protected. So he's looking out for you. That's his only motivation in any of this, is your best interest. If Adam would have obeyed, he would have possessed now a, a moral, holy character and perhaps would have risen to a higher level of fellowship with God. The reason, the reason Adam was placed in this position was to see how he would respond. Would he obey or no? Obedience always brings blessing. Disobedience always brings the opposite of that. Okay? So God would have blessed him for his obedience. Okay, perhaps, speculating, maybe we see just a hint of this possibility in the life of Enoch. He was able to develop some kind of character even while possessing an, a fallen, Adamic nature. And he was not, for God took him. But Adam did not obey, at least he obeyed up until the point where he didn't. I'll say it that way. I have no idea how long he was in a state of obedience. The Bible doesn't really say. But at some point he disobeyed. And even in this, in his disobedience, God provided a way to redeem us from our fallen state. And he had that all planned out from the foundation of the world. We understand that God is not the author of sin. He did not cause Adam to fall because God gave Adam every good reason not to. He made it just as easy for him as he could. One tree. I don't know how big the garden was. I imagine he's a big God. It was probably more than five acres. I could avoid one tree in five acres. That wouldn't be that hard. I'd fence it off. Bury it in dirt. Chop it down.
I could do something so that I wouldn't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He had all everything else available to him. Just that, that one thing is being withheld. That one thing that looks really good. So God gave him every good reason to obey and every good reason not to disobey. But even in this, God brought a miraculous redemption, a perfect and powerful victory out of our greatest weakness and failure. So we see that whatever the result of Adam's choice, God was prepared to lead us into a final state superior to the original Edenic state. Temptation of man. The agent of temptation, of course, was Satan, who was in the form of a serpent. And he speaks with Eve. Revelation 12.9 says, The great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. So he is the serpent. Okay. Genesis 3.1 says, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? I find it interesting that it says more subtle than any beast of the field. Not, what it doesn't say is, than any other beast of the field. It makes no reference of any kind in relation to the other beasts of the field. He just says more subtle than any beast of the field. It was Satan. It was Satan that approached Eve. With what motives? Adam and Eve were created holy and righteous, but seemed to have had certain basic instincts or, or drives that we talked about, impulses, which they needed for their well-being. And we talked about a few, self-preservation, acquisition, desire for food, desire for love, etc. Before the fall, their drives were balanced and controlled. But maybe Satan could use these to form a base upon which temptation could be built. Genesis 3.6 says, When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. Now these, in and of themselves, were not inherently evil desires. We get hungry. I see a really delicious looking plate of food, and I'm hungry, I'm going to desire that food. I haven't eaten all day, and I go to your house, and you're cooking barbecues. I'm going to start salivating, and I'm going to start acting a little weird until I get me a piece of that barbecue. Then I'll be, I'll be much better. Not inherently evil, okay, but they become evil because they represent a disobedience to the express commandment of God, Right? God expressly commanded them, don't eat it. Don't eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So Satan couldn't really get her this way until he first caused her to doubt God. Genesis 3.1 says, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made, and said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Now we understand that Eve had an imperfect knowledge of God's word, didn't she? She responded, we can't eat it or touch it. We need to know God's word. 
This statement by the serpent was meant to get Eve to doubt God's truthfulness. He continues, verse 5, So God doth know that, for God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Okay, so now that the doubt has germinated, the appeal to desire becomes much more effective. God's holding back. God's holding back something good from me. And isn't that what we think every time God tells us no? God told Adam and Eve no to the one tree. Don't eat it. Everything else in the entire world was theirs. There were the only two people there. It was all theirs. They had dominion over it. The whole world. But all they could think about was that one stupid tree that God told them no. Now the servant's coming and confirming that to him, getting him to think about it a little bit. Why would God hold back from you? Why would God tell you no? Is that really what God said? Is that why he said that? Any of this sound familiar? You heard this from, from the enemy before? I am amazed, and I speak from personal experience, I am so amazed at how easy it is for me to start to doubt God and how difficult it is for me to start to trust Him. Why in the world is that? Why is that? Is it because He hasn't demonstrated Himself sufficiently to me? Absolutely not. More than sufficiently. He has demonstrated his veracity, his truthfulness, his goodness. But in times past, all Satan would have had to have done is just plant one one thought. And I'm off and running. I say that to my shame. God help us all to trust in Him. To trust Him. Not trust Satan, not trust our own thoughts, our own ideas of right and wrong. Not even going to get through this. Okay, we'll leave off here with the fallen state of man. Amen. Let's all stand. God created us in a state of perfection because of free moral agency. We decided to go a different route, different path, and we fell into sin. But thank God. That's the only person you can thank. Thank God that He came in the form of a man. And He 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 completed what Adam was supposed to. He lived in perfect obedience and in perfect submission to the will of God. 
even going to the cross and dying on that. Perfect submission. Perfect obedience to the the express will and commandment of God. And because of that, you and I don't have to suffer the effects of sin. We don't have to fall under the bondage and the dominion of the enemy. We can be free. We can be free. And that's our choice too. All we have to do is choose a different master. Choose to serve Jesus instead of the enemy. Amen. Let's pray in closing. Lord Jesus, I'm so thankful for You. I'm so thankful for the love and the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that while we were yet sinners, You died for me. When I hated You, when I hated Your ways, You loved me. You drew me, you wooed me with cords of love to a place of repentance unto salvation. Oh, hallelujah, Jesus. I will be forever and eternally grateful that you loved me enough to save me. Thank you, Jesus, for your mercy, your grace. Thank you, Lord, for your word, for the revelation of truth. Be with us, minister to our every need. As we go our separate ways, bring us back to the house of God at the day appointed. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for your kind attention. You are dismissed. There's no announcements we need. Nope. Dismissed.